Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We are coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, political analyst, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. Sputnik International reports Russia preemptively repelled aggression with Ukraine. This is according to a Victory Day speech delivered by Russian President Vladimir Putin. For insight into this, let's turn to our first guest. He's an associate professor of economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, and he's also the former president of the National Economics Association, Dr. Linwood Tahid. As always, sir, welcome back. Thank you. Uh, President Putin says, we saw how the military infrastructure was unfolding, how hundreds of foreign advisors had begun to work there with the most modern weapons being regularly delivered from NATO countries. He also said that NATO countries had refused to listen to the Russian Federation as they had been preparing an attack on Crimea. Your thoughts on this and what's interesting to me is how none of this is really discussed or debated in Western press. In fact, if you try to have an informed, contextual conversation about this conflict, you're going to quickly be removed, deplatformed, labeled a whole lot of things that aren't that favorable. <laughs> Dr. Linwood Tahi. Yeah, I think it's important to to um, ex- to uh, explore the context of this. I mean, the historical context of this. Uh, this speech is given by Putin. Uh, in, in what has been uh, up to this point uh, publicized as uh, Russian Victory Day. Uh, but, but in fact, this is Victory in Europe Day. This is VE Day. This is the day in which Europeans and Americans have traditionally celebrated the victory of Europe uh, and, and the U.S. over Nazis in World War II. And, and, and Putin has had described his uh, invasion of Ukraine as for the purpose of demilitarization and denazification. That that gets missed, and and so this is this is not Russia being triumphant. This is uh, supposedly the Europeans be, uh, expre- expressing their uh, their their victory over Nazis, and 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 there are Nazis in Ukraine. They are officially part of the Ukrainian army. Uh, right now, many of them are, are surrounded in the city of Mariupol. And, and uh, when, when Putin is, is uh, giving the context for why he invaded uh, Ukraine, that's completely ignored, except uh, Pope Francis has recently given credence to, to that by, by saying that uh, the barking of NATO uh, on, on the borders of, of Russia, uh, probably led to his preemptive invasion into Russia. So you don't have to believe Putin if you, if you can believe Pope Francis, unless you believe that Pope Francis is a, is just a, a Russian stooge. And so and so this this story is unraveling as people get an understanding of, of the history and of other than Western, uh, Western dominated media, corporate dominated media in, in this, in this, in this struggle. 
before this invasion, it, it was understood that there were about 14,000 people who were killed in eastern Ukraine by the Ukrainian army, which was mostly um, uh, dominated by those Azov battalion, battalion Nazis who were holed up in Mariupol for, since, since 2014 for eight, eight, eight years. That story has gone away as well. When you said that the story is unraveling, I've noticed that myself. When this military crisis first started, we were, if you remember, the first argument was it was just a Putin wanted to exp- rebuild the Soviet Union and uh, he was just angry and just decided he was angry at somebody. Oh, no, he wasn't was angry. No, he was a, a madman mad who was striking out. And, and it was unprovoked. It was an extremely simplistic and superficial argument. And I find it interesting that you said that it's unraveling because I am noticed more, more and more as time goes on there are some significant contradictions being exposed here, not the least of which being the United States. Joe Biden saying he ran for president because he was inspired by the Charlottesville incident. And the fact that the people that the U.S. is arming and supporting are, I mean, they're not neo-Nazis. Neo implies new. They're the old-fashioned kind of Nazis, the, the real deal. But I think that contradiction is going to continue to to grow and grow. And, and, and I think people around the world, particularly in the United States, I'll say for now, are, are asking more questions about that. Your thoughts? Yes, I was listening, listening to a progressive um, um, host on, a, on another network uh, some time ago who was saying that he had been to Ukraine earlier and uh, had met Nazis who had fought with Hitler, and that these Nazis, the Azov battalions in the right movement, are not real Nazis. Well, you know, I wanted to call in and, and say that was, uh, quote, mighty white of him, because real Nazis and, and, and fake Nazis, neither of them have any problem with him as a white commentator, but they have plenty of problems with black folks. And, and, so, and so the black community has to weigh uh, the, 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 whether uh, supporting Nazis in Ukraine is, is something that, that is in the interest of this community. And, and others in, in, in the U.S., uh, those who uh, would, would be against Nazis in general, uh, have, to, have to take this story of, of whether or not the, the Azov Battalion and these other folks are real Nazis or fake Nazis and, and question whether they should be on the side of of Nazis of any kind, and so that story it can't can't be suppressed because it was it was in the news before uh, the the uh, Russians invaded, uh, even going back to the Obama administration, in which uh, President Obama refused to send weapons to the Ukraine because he didn't want to supply the Nazis with those weapons, and so there's plenty of history to, uh, that that needs to be uh, that will be um, uh, re- resurrected. In this in this story, and and so that's part of this process of, of this uh, current story being being um, un, um, being uncovered. A couple of things. One, you mentioned President Obama not wanting to send weapons to Ukraine because he didn't want to arm Nazis, and there was an NBC story that that uh, we talked about last week on this show from 2014, highlighting the fact that there were not. They showed they showed the symbols on the helmets, and the, there were Nazis in the Ukraine. Uh, but now all of that seems to have seems to fall upon deaf ears. And it's interesting that you that you mentioned the African-American community and its position here, because it's been incredibly disturbing to me how those of us who try to historically contextualize the story are under attack. You know, how can you support Vladimir Putin as a black man? 
totally ignoring Russia's historic involvement in anti-imperialist struggles in African countries. That seems to fall upon deaf ears. And what really came to mind when you mentioned the black community is where is the Congressional Black Caucus as as the United States continues to provide funding and there was a there was a report i think it was the red cross had to put up on their website that that african americans who want to volunteer uh, and peace go, corps peace, that was peace corps peace yeah. corps thank you african americans who want to volunteer and go to ukraine have to be prepared for the insults and the attacks by Ukrainians that they're going to be subjected to just because they're black. Yes, a- absolutely. And so there's there's at least three uh, opinions that need to be um, uh, weighed here. There's the opinions of Russians, uh, opinions of U.S. media, and the opi- opinions of those who are who are anti-Nazis and and uh, and uh, anti-fascists. In, in this in this process, and when when you you know this 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 side is not not clear, um, or, or at least it's becoming clearer as as we get an, an understanding of the historical context that, uh, of that of that region, and uh, going back to World War II, and this uh, VE Day celebration, I think brings that into focus. Um, there's a you know you mentioned the, st- the the steel plant that's been a big issue. Um, there's a steel plant called Azovstal in Mariupol. Um, the um, a number of the Nazi uh, battalions were have been running that city for a while, controlling the city. Um, uh, uh, they were laid siege upon by the Russian military. At some point, they backed into this gigantic um, cement plant. It's like two kilometers in size, I think, and with, with lots of underground um, bunkers. And apparently they were holding civilians. They've let the civilians go. And apparently now they are held up there, locked there or whatever. And I guess the question is what, 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 what's going to happen? What are your thoughts on the whole, this whole Azov stall and the Nazis being hide, hidden out in an underground bunker? It just seems kind of weird, like something in a movie, to be quite honest. And, and it's the focus of media coverage as a indication of resistance, yeah. honorable resistance, and go ahead. Defenders, they call them. Exactly. Nazi defenders. Exactly. Defenders, nonetheless. Well, well, these, these folks are called the Azov Battalion, uh, and the Azov Steel uh, plant is because it's it's by the Azov Sea, which is which is the the the, the port that uh, in in uh, that this uh, that this this city Mariupol is on, and and so they have a this is their this is the territory this is their headquarters out of which they. Uh, which they move. A question about the civilians. I think it's it's now estimated there were up to about 400 civilians who were who were released. Is why did it take so long for these civilians to be released? One, and and two, uh, the Russians have been willing uh, to to release these civilians for a long time, but these civilians are coming out, and many of them are 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 saying that they were in fact held prisoner. Uh, used as as human shields by the by the Nazis, which is what you would expect from Nazis, right? <laughs> and 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 so they they couldn't get out until until the UN intervened and allowed them uh, to to come out. So it took them a long time, uh, not because the Russians were holding them back, but because the 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 uh, Nazis and the Azov Steel Azovstal um, uh, plant were holding them back. Now they're out. It's only uh, supposedly military there. 
And and so, uh, you know, the, the Ukrainians, the Ukrainian government, Zelensky is saying essentially that they should not, not surrender, that they should die there. And so the Russians have, have that city completely under control. And um, uh, there was a story earlier that, that uh, you know, that goes back to the, the, the maiden uh, 2014 and the election of, of Zelensky, where he was threatened. Uh, Zelensky was threatened by, by the Nazis uh, uh, in, in Ukraine against having any peaceful relationships with Russia. And in, in fact, uh, by, by, uh, by demanding that the, uh, the, the soldiers there remain in place, it actually, in fact, uh, solves a, a part of Zelensky's problem if they are exterminated. And, and so, you know, this, this, this is really very convoluted uh, in, in, in terms of, of how it plays out. But, but, one, uh, but what's, what's simple is that there are Nazis in the Azov Steel plan, and, and the Russians had that, that territory under control, and Ukrainian, Ukrainian army is not coming to their to their rescue. We have just about a minute left, and I, I thought I was wondering, and I've been wondering for a while, as Zelensky has been saying, you guys need to stay there, if this is his way of getting rid of those Nazis, because they have one of the reasons why Zelensky has not been able to come to peaceful terms with Russia is because the Nazis have threatened to hang him from a tree if he negotiates. And the United States also is squeezing him tightly, not allowing him to uh, negotiate a peaceful surrender. We've got about 45 seconds. Yeah, Zelensky ran on a peace with Russia um, uh, platform, and he won uh, with 73 percent of the vote based on that that peace uh, uh, promotion. And as soon as he was elected, he was uh, threatened by by the Nazis, by the uh, by the white supremacists and and right wingers in in Ukraine, not to have a peace deal. And so uh, his inability, uh, I think, he desires to have peace, but but he's not able to do that under threat. And then uh, Boris Johnson from the Ukraine came came and derailed any any poss- any current possibility of peace. And so it's the West that's standing in 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 the um, 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 in the way of peace and and supporting the Nazis in Ukraine. It's not Zelensky, and it and it's not Putin. It's your local Nazis, Dr. Linwood Tahid. As always, thank you so much. Really appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you. Sir. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. The U.S. State Department website page on relations with Taiwan has removed language about the U.S. recognizing the People's Republic of China as a sole legal government of China and acknowledgement that Taiwan is part of China. It also used to state that it does not recognize Taiwan independence. That language is also gone. How significant is this? Well, let's turn to our next guest. He's a peace activist, writer, and teacher, K.J. No. As always, K.J., welcome back. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. So that piece that I just uh, stated, I'm sure, has been missed by a, an awful lot of people. 
But that's a very, very telling act, in my humble opinion. Your thoughts, KJ, no. Absolutely. In the world of diplomacy, nothing happens by accident. And it's hard to believe that there would have been such a uh, huge revision of the written public statement, the written public position of the United States towards Taiwan and China uh, without some very high-level discussion and deliberation going on. This signals uh, in a small but significant way that the U.S. is no longer committed to the three communiques. It does not recognize uh, China as the legitimate and sole government of a single China. Uh, and uh, and it, it waffles on the issue of Taiwan independence. Now, the problem there is that the entire U.S.-China relationship is built on the three communiques. And when you start to chip away at that, then you have very little left. You have essentially the 2005 anti-secession law of China, which says that if there is... Um, if there is uh, an attempt of a foreign interference or secession, then China will be obligated to use military force. And on the other hand, the U.S. has highlighted on its website once again and its public statements that it is committed to the Taiwan Relations Act. Well, the Taiwan Relations Act says that if there is, um, a, you know, forceful intervention uh, by China, then the U.S. is committed. Uh, quote, unquote, to giving Taiwan the means to defend itself. So there's a real kind of vicious circle that can be triggered at this point. And the question is, is this statement on the State Department website that trigger? And uh, I think it's of consequence, particularly because of the timing, because just last week, you know, it's kind of interesting. I'm not going to say that these things aren't real, but, you know, two weeks ago, Nancy Pelosi said she's going to Taiwan. The the, the, uh, the PRC re- responded fairly angrily, shall we say, and then she said, I've got COVID, I can't go. Last week, Tony Blinken was about to speak on the, I guess, the latest on the U.S. policy towards China, which everybody kind of knew what it was, and then he's got COVID, he can't go, and this comes out. In in light of all of these other factors, it certainly appears as though they're just, and, and based on what everything that's happened in, in Ukraine recently, it, it just appears that the lunatic neocons, and we know what and who they are, are flexing their muscles, as it were, and that this, sadly, is in line with their thinking, and it almost makes sense as to what they do next, because they're lunatics. Well, absolutely. I mean, certainly, I mean, thank goodness for COVID, otherwise we wouldn't have these excuses. But, um, you know, these are serious, uh, you know, belligerent provocations. And as I said, once again, the anti-secession law of China says that if there is foreign interference, China will use force. And on the other hand, the U.S. has set it up so that if China uses force, then uh, the U.S. gives itself the right to intervene. So escalation is built into this relationship. It, you know, for, you know, several decades, four decades, you know, there was, uh, you know, a relative peace and stability but uh, the poison pill was started from uh, the beginning. And so, yes, I think this administration is seriously misreading the situation. I believe that they are acting in an extremely irrational way. And to you know, borrow some of the language of you know, recent celebrity uh, trial, 
this is really borderline behavior. When you sense that you are losing control, what you do is you start triggering, you start uh, creating the conditions for a fight. And that is very, very dangerous. You mentioned a little earlier about what this signals. When an administration or when a government uh, decides to change or step away from the one China policy, and there isn't even really, there isn't any debate, there isn't any pushback. There, so what that says to me is that now, whereas when the policy was initiated, there was debate. There were differing opinions on how the United States should deal with China. Well, now it seems as though everybody's on the same page. They're all going down the same rabbit hole. And that is, a, to me, is, is an incredibly frightening signal. Absolutely. I mean, I would say that, um, you know, certainly there's been no debate in a democratic sense. Um, Neither you nor I nor any of the citizens of the United States have had any say on whether they want to escalate to war with China. But certainly the ruling class, the imperial ruling class, which always makes out well when any time there is an escalation, you know, is is on the same page. And um, essentially, uh, the U.S. is saying that, you know, we're going to do our thing. The ruling class will do our thing. Uh, You know, uh, there is no need to discuss this. And we will do this by stealth. You know, if they were going to have a real change in policy, uh, I would say that they should have this discussion. But that's not how it happened. Essentially, we were given a series of salami slicing fait accompli, uh, starting with, uh, you know, Mike Pompeo's statement at the Nixon Library in July, uh, which essentially declared the the time of engagement over. And then we've recently had, you know, the sense of Congress on Taiwan, which also, you know, is uh, highly uh, uh, tilted towards uh, supporting Taiwan's independence. So all the signals are about independence. All the signals are about creating a trigger. And that is an extraordinarily, once again, as I say, extraordinarily dangerous thing to be doing in this current moment. Something that's of consequence in that part of the world, in the Philippines, Ferdinand Marcos Jr. Um, appears to be winning a, a blowout of somewhere around double or more of the the last count I saw was uh, somewhere around double the, um, the amount of votes of his closest competitor. And while certainly there are some questions about ideological bend, shall we say, it does appear to be a loss for the U.S. empire in that he appears to, at minimum, want some level of lowering the tension in his region between, you know, his, his, his country, the U.S. and China, South China Sea, et cetera. You're absolutely correct. I mean, he is a pragmatist uh, and he is a continuation of Duterte's policy. In fact, his vice president is Duterte's daughter. And so what is being signaled here in this blowout election is that there will be continuity in terms of good or bilateral relations with China. And the key issue that the U.S. was trying to weaponize, the South China Sea, which Duterte completely ignored, uh, will go on in the same way. That is to say, the U.S. created this fraudulent case that engineered it in a private tribunal And it was using it to try and delegitimate China 
but also to create a provocation against China. And uh, uh, Duterte said that, you know, this is a non-issue and anything that is an issue we will resolve with China in a bilateral fashion and not through the auspices or under the control of the United States. And so this signals that there will be, uh, there will not be any confrontation, uh, certainly not any outright confrontation with uh, China and that things will continue uh, as before. And this is, uh, this is something of a loss because the U.S. had, you know, gained a night in Northeast Asia, in Korea. It was hoping also to gain another major piece on the chessboard in Philippines. And it looks like it may uh, lose that. And how do you think the United States responds to that? Uh, because one of the things that, that, that we see on the show all the time, and we've said this to you probably a number of times, is global imperial hegemons, even if they're failing, don't go quietly into the night. Certainly not. They will not go quietly into that good night. And so I think what we will see is more language around human rights abuse. It's always, you know, the weaponization of human rights against uh, a dictator or a government or uh, any leader that you don't like. So I anticipate there'll be more of that. As I said, you know, there's a continuity with Duterte's uh, administration. And then Ferdinand Marcos Jr. himself, you know, is the son of the former dictator who was a U.S. client. He was uh, he was good until he was no longer good and then he was dumped. But I'm sure that all of that past history will be dug up again and then there'll be further allegations of human rights abuses. In, uh, in, in what seems to be an attempt to, to, break, to once again break the hypocrisy meter, the Australia, the, their Solomon, uh, they have met with the uh, Solomon's Island foreign minister for the first time since Solomon's Island signed a, uh, their deal with the, um, with, with, the, with the People's Republic of China. And there's been threats. And recently the um, prime minister of the, uh, of the Solomon's Island pushed back and, and, and exposed and discussed the hypocrisy of, of the U.S. empire and its vassals in attempting to draw a red line around Solomon's Island, uh, the Solomon's Islands. Your thoughts? Well, I mean, this all boils down to the fact that um, when the Solomon Islands transitioned and broke relations with Taiwan, which it was being bribed to keep and pragmatically decided to open official relations with China, there was an attempted coup. There was an attempted color revolution. Uh, Solomon Islands had a security arrangement with Australia because it doesn't have its own army. The Australian army was extraordinarily uh, laissez-faire with this uh, attack on the government. And, you know, uh, a large portion of the Chinese-owned businesses were burnt down. And so then the Solomon Islands reached out to China and drew up a security pact, which is not, which has nothing to do with military basing or anything of that type. And Australia, you know, is once again, because it has a habit of colonizing and enslaving the Solomon Islanders, considers the Solomon Islands its traditional sphere of influence and threatened threatened uh, uh, in private and, uh, you know, through, you know, through media to overthrow the government. So they've met uh, the Solomon Islands has, you know, tried to calm the waters, told them, you know, don't read too much into this. This is a pragmatic relationship. We have sovereign rights. And the Australians have calmed down a little bit. But I think that, you know, the hammer is waiting, uh, you know, in the wings. And I think that if there's any sense 
they feel that they are approaching too close to China, I think once again, you know, the the hammer will be brought out. China tells U.S. it will not be scared off by sanctions over Taiwan. Foreign Vice Minister Lei uh, Yucheng tells Forum that unimaginable consequences will result if Washington pushes the issue. Yes, I mean, I want us to take note of this language, unimaginable consequences. This is something that you almost never hear from Chinese uh, diplomats or Mm -hmm. politicians. So they're saying that, you know, mess with us and be ready for, you know, for war, you know, for incredible uh, repercussions. I don't think the U.S. should touch that third rail, but it looks like it's getting closer and closer. Sounds eerily reminiscent to what uh, President Putin told Biden back in March. Uh, you, you you don't move those troops off the border. My response will be asymmetrical and disproportionate. You don't want either of those two things. Uh, KJ, no, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate it. We look forward to having you back. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Antiwar.com has a piece entitled, What the Media Still Isn't Telling You About Russiagate. Two years ago, last Saturday, May 7th, 2020, Adam Schiff, chair of the House Intelligence Committee, was forced to perform what Nixon co-conspirator John Ehrlichman famously called a modified limited hangout. On that day, Schiff released sworn testimony that there was zero technical evidence that Russia or anyone else hacked those DNC emails so prejudicial to Hillary Clinton. They were later published in WikiLeaks. For insight, let's turn to our next guest. He leads the Speaking Truth to Power section of Tell the World, a publishing arm of the Ecumenical Church of the Savior in inner city Washington. He served as a CIA analyst for 27 years, chairing the national intelligence estimates and preparing the president's daily brief, which he briefed one-on-one to President Ronald Reagan's five most senior national security advisors from 81 to 85. He co-created veteran intelligence professionals for sanity, and he also uh, co-authored this piece, Ray McGovern. As always, welcome back. Thanks. You continue in this piece now, please, before you put me in Putin's or Trump's pocket, read on. What should people read on, Ray, and what should they know before they put you in Putin's Trump or Donald Trump's pocket? Quickly. (laughs) Uh, This testimony comes from none other than the head of the cyber firm CrowdStrike. Now, people hopefully remember that Uh, When there was this so-called hack on the Democratic National Committee computers and blamed immediately on Russia, uh, John McCain and others were saying this was an act of war. This was an act of war. We're talking about late 2016, uh, just around the election of Donald Trump. 
so what did the head of the FBI do about this act of war? Uh, well, for reasons he never could really explain, he deferred to CrowdStrike, this cyber firm headed up by an old friend of his, Comey, and uh, Bob Mueller, actually, for whom he worked for about 10 years. And he said, you, you do the forensics on this. Uh, we, we, uh, we, don't, we don't want any part of doing the forensics on this act of war. <laughs> and so CrowdStrike did the forensics. And what did they come up with? Well, everyone was led to believe that they came up with solid evidence that the Russians hacked the DNC emails. Now, why was this a big deal? Well, the DNC emails indicated, without any doubt, that Hillary Clinton had pretty much stolen the Democratic nomination from Bernie Sanders. The way the primaries were stacked, the way there were a hundred things that the DNC and Hillary did to get the nomination away from Bernie Sanders, who was immensely popular and who I think would have won, won the election. In any case, it was really important because what happened? These emails were released by WikiLeaks three days before the Democratic National Convention in late July 2016. So they were really prejudicial. Uh, they had to be uh, countered in some way. And the chosen path was to blame it all on Russia. Russia hacked the DNC to make sure that Trump won. I mean, when you think about it, if you wanted to accuse somebody of something really heinous, <laughs> I'm showing my own political prejudice now, I mean, what could be worse than being responsible or even partly responsible for having Trump in office for four years? I can't, I can't imagine it. So most Americans were, believe, were led to believe that the Russians hacked into this stuff and gave it to WikiLeaks. Now we knew, now we should have known two years ago on May 7th, 2020, that it was all, <laughs> it was all what we call in the Bronx, it was all a crock, okay? It was all made up and CrowdStrike finally had to admit that it was a crock, that there was no, as they put it, no technical evidence of a hack by Russia or by anybody else. And so what we veteran intelligence professionals had been saying for five years happened to be true. It wasn't a hack by Russia or anyone else. It was a leak. Somebody put a thumb drive into one of those DNC computers, carried that stuff over to WikiLeaks, and that's where it was published. So what does this mean? My God, uh, two years ago, um, the head of the intelligence committee, Adam Schiff, has to admit this. Why? Well, because the new national intelligence director, freshly appointed by um, by Donald Trump, said, uh, look, if you don't release that testimony, I'm going to release it because everybody thinks the Russians hacked and you know, we probably should acknowledge that they didn't. So what happened? Well, McGovern reads this on May 7th, 2020. Now, McGovern is pretty jaundiced on the mainstream press, but even he, like, 
Even me, even I thought, oh, they can't ignore this. This is sworn testimony. We have the we have the text of the testimony. Oh, this is going to be really interesting. And, you know, it turned out to be really interesting, but in sort of a negative way, because the New York Times and Washington Post, the whole mess of those mainstream media suppressed it. So most Americans never knew, never got to know until this day, two and well, two years and, and counting, that the head of CrowdStrike, the firm to whom Comey deferred to do the forensics, found out that there was no Russian hack. Now, the last thing I'll say here is that it's re really even worse. Uh, that was two years ago. That testimony by Sean Henry, uh, the head of CrowdStrike, was given on December 5, 2017. Uh, I'll say it again, 2017. So what we have here is testimony that was already two and a half years old, suppressed by Adam Schiff of the House Intelligence Committee, and finally released because he was pressured to do so, and two more years. Now, will will the Times be able to match uh, Schiff in, in making it two and a half more years? <laughs> in all likelihood. But those people who believe Rachel Maddow, instead of the court testimony of a fellow who couldn't perjure himself, because, you know, you're not supposed to perjure yourself before, before the House. Uh, those people who prefer to do that because they can't believe that anything that Trump charged the Democrats with could be true. Well, they they remain in this never never land of not believing this, and more dangerous, believing that the Russians, that the Russians are evil incarnate, and you know it's a, a simple step from that five years of conditioning to believe that to make a little war on Russia, whether in Ukraine or elsewhere in Eastern Europe. You know, Ray, the other thing I think that is interesting regarding what, you know, you were uh, discussing CrowdStrike is that we've recently learned Michael Sussman, who has been charged with lying to the FBI, and I have my thoughts on that. You know, I mean, I find it hard to believe that the FBI didn't know that Hillary Clinton's lawyer was Hillary Clinton's lawyer. But that being said, Michael Sussman, we found out that part of what he was involved in, it certainly appears that they were creating false evidence um, to, to pretend that, uh, pres that uh, President Trump's was, con was communicating through the Russians through, to the Russians with the Russians through some bank server or something. Okay. But it appears there's evidence have come out that that seems to have been manufactured out of whole cloth, that they created data out of whole cloth, that this thing was a fraud. Michael Sussman, who was involved in creating apparently uh, information out of whole cloth to make accusations against uh, President Trump in Russiagate, was the same person who was working for Perkins Coy who went and chose CrowdStrike to do this. I think there is something that we can possibly oh get from that. Well, uh, Garland, uh, you're right to be suspicious of all this. Uh, what you first said about you can't believe that the FBI didn't know uh, who Sussman was actually represented. Well, and the question, the issue is the FBI was a major player in this whole thing. It was they that launched this investigation. And when when Schiff took testimony from the head of CrowdStrike, 
they had just begin the begun the investigation. And you know, my question is, uh, didn't didn't anyone tell Bob Mueller uh, a couple of months into his two year investigation? Didn't they tell him? Uh, that the CrowdStrike stuff was a crock, that there was no evidence, no technical evidence of a Russian hack, because he went willy-nilly on uh, beyond, and this is important, beyond the midterm election. And you know what happened then? The Dems won big, and Adam Schiff remained in power or, or became a chair of the committee again. So what we have here is a a deep state, I mean, by definition, deep state FBI involvement, first in trying to prevent Trump from winning the election, second from making it impossible for do anything as president. And, you know, um, when you ask, well, no, wait a second, McGovern, for God's sake, you tell, oh, come on. How, how could they think they could get away with that? Simple. Comey admits in his book, as I'll quote, uh, I was operating under the premise that Hillary Clinton was sure to be the next president of the United States, end quote. Well, <laughs> if that's your premise, uh, you're going to get away with uh, with whatever you, you, you can do to help her, whether it's a crime or not. And you're going to get medals and you get promoted. You're not going to get indicted. Whoops. Wait a second. At least one, two, three. There are three indicted now. Be interesting to see how this plays out and how long Rachel Maddow and her colleagues can continue to ignore it. You know, one of the things that I've just never forgotten was an interview I did with you and Bill Binney. Uh, I think he was with the, with the NSA for 37 years, where Bill said he tried to replicate the data transfer the quote, the so-called hack, and I believe it was seven different servers in seven different countries and came out and said it's mathematically impossible. It defies the laws of physics that that amount of data that they claim to have been, quote unquote, hacked could not have been transferred through the Internet, that it had to have been basically an inside job, someone going to the server, physically attaching a storage device, either a thumb drive or some other type of external storage device directly into the server. That's the only way mathematically, and he's a mathematician, I believe, that that amount of data could have been, could have been but that never made it into the mainstream uh, discussion. Well, not only that, uh, Wilmer, you're quite right. You know, it's really distressing. Uh, it not even made it into progressive circles. Uh, progressive circles could not believe that that Donald Trump could be right about anything. I mean, even a broken clock is right twice a day, right? Well, Trump possibly be right, okay? And so there was this resistance. Now, in the intelligence community, when you have the experts, and you know they're reliable, you know they have no access to grind, and you call on them to prove something, or to at least adduce proof of something, uh, that is uh, that is true by the principles of physics, as well as the testimony of Ed Snowden in Hong Kong, as well as the expertise of two former NSA technical directors, and you still can't get 
even progressives to pay attention because they just don't want to. <laughs> if I'm sounding a little uh, a little astonished as well as aggrieved, oh, well, you got the right idea. Uh, we published the memo on December 12, 2016. So do the math. One year before Schiff took testimony from that of CrowdStrike. And in that memo, we meticulously described the difference between a hack and a leak, a thumb drive. And we pointed out that there are all kinds of ways from these charts that were given to us by Ed Snowden, top secret charts, that we that NSA would track any kind of any kind of uh, hack, anything over the internet. It was in July that Bill Binney and I appeared with you after we wrote another memo, which showed from internal evidence that it could not have been a hack because the speed that uh, well, the speed, yeah, so. Ray McGovern, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. You're most welcome. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. There's a great piece in Orinoco Tribune, Cape Verde. Ulysses Correa admits kidnapping of Alex Saab was an exchange for cooperative security. The prime minister of Cape Verde, Ulysses Correa, admitted that the kidnapping and delivery of Venezuelan diplomat Alex Saab was the product of a compromise between the African nation and the United States government. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's an American human rights, labor rights lawyer, and peace activist. He has contributed articles to Counterpunch, the Huffington Post, and Telesaur. He teaches international human rights at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. His latest book is entitled Cancel This Book, The Progressive Case Against Cancel Culture, and he's the author of this piece. Dan Kovalik, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So uh, I'm I'm not going to ask any questions. I'm just going to say, Dan Kovalik, tell us what's going on. Yes, well, this is the uh, continuing saga of Alex Saab, who is now sitting in a jail in Miami, Florida. He is a Colombian national, but he was also a Venezuelan diplomat and was traveling with a diplomatic passport on his way to Iran when his plane, uh, which was trying to refuel uh, – in Africa, I think he tried to refuel in Senegal and Morocco. Neither country allowed him to land there, so he went to Cabo Verde, uh, where uh, authorities were waiting for him to arrest him. Uh, both Morocco and Senegal refused his entry into those countries because of the U.S., which demanded that they not allow him to land. So he landed in Cabo Verde, where the U.S. Uh, uh, had it prepared for him to be arrested, which he was, and he ended up being um, mostly under house arrest for over a year uh, and denied medical attention even though he, he has cancer. 
Um, and they claimed it was being done because of various uh, embezzlement and corruption charges. Um, but indeed, really his crime was trying to help Venezuela uh, circumnavigate illegal sanctions against Venezuela, trying to get food and medicine from countries like Iran, and that's what he was doing at the time. Um, the U.S. and Cabo Verde don't have an extradition treaty, and in addition to that, a couple of international bodies, including an AU, uh, America, uh, African Union uh, Tribunal in, in Africa, and a uh, the Human Rights Commission of the UN ruled that, in fact, his arrest and planned extradition at that point were illegal. Um, but just before a new president was going to come into power in Cabo Verde, um, who they thought – the US thought was against his arrest and extradition, uh, the US just simply kidnapped him. And uh, for a second time, because the first time was also a kidnapping, and brought him to the United States, to Miami, where he is now uh, standing trial or potentially standing trial um, for these charges brought against him. In the meantime, he's, he's defending himself in part because he was a diplomat and had diplomatic immunity. So in any case, now it's come out from this prime minister that you just quoted – um, that Cabo Verde was in fact coerced by the U.S. into arresting and extraditing uh, Alex Saab uh, again in, abs in the absence of, of an extradition treaty. So this is pretty damning information, and we're actually working. I'm helping actually um, Alex Saab's lawyers, and we're going to seek more information through a FOIA request of this type to show that in fact. All of this has been politically motivated. This ties right in with the Julian Assange case because it's another instance of the U.S. using lawfare. This is not about the law at all. In fact, my understanding um, in doing some research in this case was the U.S. said they had a international warrant or something for Alex Saab's arrest. And when they took him to the U.S., the warrant wasn't issued until the next day after they after they, they kidnapped him. So this is, is like v as blatant a case as you can get of lawfare, of actually empire just saying we have the power and – I have to suspect this. If, in fact, this was about, quote, security, how many times does security end up with a brown bag full of money being put, put, put in somebody's hand? You know what I mean? If you're going to violate the law, oftentimes in countries, you're going to violate it with, like, uh, greasing someone's palms. Am I too cynical to think that also? No, it's true. And, in fact, this was very unpopular in Cabo Verde. In fact, it was the extradition or the arrest and plan extradition of Alex Saab that helped get this new president elected who had vowed to uh, reverse the decision of the prior president be because people felt like they were being treated like a colony of the United States, and uh, they resented that. This, by the way, Cabo Verde, which is an island nation off the coast of Africa, is a former uh, Portuguese uh, colony. So they are uh, people who – uh, really uh, uh, chafe under the idea of being some other country's pawn, and um, this was quite unpopular. But again, there were deals made with the government there 
that allowed this to happen. So as you are working with his with his legal team, I guess they're still waiting for the determination of his of his diplomatic status, or has that already been determined? No, it has not been determined, and he's now been sitting in this court in Miami for some time, or this jail in Miami for some time. And in fact, now there's been announced a, a delay uh, in in the decision as to whether he's a diplomat. So again, what what what? You know, uh, as Garland, you know, referred to the Julian Assange case, this happened with Julian Assange, who sat in jail now for years um, without being tried on any charges. That appears to be the goal for Alex Saab, right? That they're just going to let him sit there. They're not even going to resolve the initial diplo- uh, you know, diplomatic issue. Uh, meanwhile, he's going to sit in jail uh, far away from home. Uh, and, uh, again, it could be years before he ever gets to trial. One of the differences between Alex Saab and Julian Assange is the the diplomacy, the diplomat issue. How dangerous of a precedent is the United States setting by handling Alex Saab in this manner as it relates to American diplomats all over the world? Well, it's very dangerous, you know, and, and the reason that uh, countries agree to international law and they agree to diplomatic immunity and to protect the diplomatic immunity of other countries is that, of course, they expect the same uh, respect for their own diplomats, right? And so when the U.S. goes around and simply kidnaps, now on two occasions, a Venezuelan diplomat, You know, they risk that their diplomats could be kidnapped, could be arrested, Um, you know, and that's the danger, you know. But the U.S., the problem is the U.S. thinks it has the military might uh, uh, to prevent that around the world, that it has the power to stop that and doesn't need the law. Uh, And I guess we'll have to see if that's the case. Venezuela and Bolivia have signed a new bilateral agreement. The interesting thing, I think, about that agreement is part of when they discussed it, they said that um, it was a setting to ratify, quote, the rejection of unilateralism and interference. They also condemned the imposition of arbitrary and illegal unilateral uh, coercive measures, sanctions against sovereign peoples. Clearly, it's a pushback against the U.S. empire. Seems to be a lot of that going on now in uh, Latin America. Your thoughts? Yeah, well, it is very exciting what's happening. Um, There is a huge pushback against U.S intervention and influence in Latin America. You also have uh, Lula da Silva, who's running uh, for president in Brazil, who said that he would like to create a currency for Latin America to uh, wean Latin America off the U.S. dollar and therefore protect it from U.S. sanctions and protect it from undue influence by the United States. You have AMLO in Mexico who has really taken an independent course uh, in his foreign policy, refused to sanction Russia, is trying to nationalize the lithium reserves there. So, yeah, I mean, I think the U.S. is seeing a lot of pushback uh, in a region that it has felt the right to control over the years. So there's another story 
Dan, in responsible statecraft, uh, that Blinken signals zero change from failed Trump Venezuela policy. Crippling sanctions have yet to topple Nicolas Maduro, yet they punish the very people we're supposedly we supposedly want to liberate. Uh, your thoughts on on um, on Blinken and this whole issue, even as the United States has had to go hat in hand trying to beg Venezuela for oil. Yeah, no, it's 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 incredible how the U.S. has really mistreated uh, Venezuela. Um, as you say, even though now it, it may need uh, Venezuela and Nicolas Maduro for the oil. In the meantime, the U.S. stole uh, Venezuela's uh, largest single source of revenue, Citgo, uh, Venezuela's U.S. oil company. And is planning to sell it off in pieces, meaning it'll never go back to Venezuela. Um, of course, the U.S. has openly uh, engaged in attempted coups in Venezuela and recognized this Juan Guaido and continues to recognize him, even though he holds no elected office in Venezuela, and they and they recognize him as the president. And so, yeah, I mean, um, and Venezuela's pushed back against this successfully. Uh, but the U.S. continues again to act, you know, uh, very flagrantly in 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 rejecting Venezuela's sovereignty. It also appears to me that so many other foreign parts of the foreign policy. This isn't a Biden administration foreign policy. It's just the U.S. foreign policy. That's all it is. The U.S. is continuing its foreign policy, and it doesn't matter the the presidents and parts are interchangeable. No, because we can take this attack on Venezuela all the way back to Obama, if not, uh, yeah. if not back to Bush. Yeah, you can, because remember. Uh, the U.S. supported uh, the coup against Chavez in 2002. That was George W. Bush. And also Bush, the Bush administration supported the management-led oil strikes in Venezuela, which really devastated the economy. Yeah, and then you get to Obama, who uh, twice declared Venezuela a unique threat to U.S. national security and imposed sanctions. Uh, Trump uh, only increase the sanctions, and Biden has done nothing to loosen those sanctions against Venezuela. So, as you say, this is a uh, bilateral policy of the or, or bipartisan policy of of the U.S. government, and it does seem it doesn't matter who's in office. The that policy stays the same. Dan Kovalik, as always, Dan, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you very much. Folks, you are listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Hezbollah Secretary General Syed Hassan Nasrallah addressed the election ceremony in, in Lebanon entitled, We 
shall forever protect and build up. It was held in Tyre earlier today. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's a broadcaster, analyst, and journalist based in Beirut, Lebanon, Laith Marouf. As always, Laith, welcome back. Thank you for having me. So give us an overview of what uh, the Secretary General uh, had to say. Oh, well, it, it was, as you you noted, an address uh, to the Lebanese nation uh, for the upcoming elections that are um, scheduled for Sunday, May 15th, which um, coincidentally falls on Nakba Day, the catastrophe day of Palestine, the annual commemorations. Uh, so it was uh, kind of ironic, uh, but... The uh, address, he spoke to the nation about how the opposition uh, have positioned all their campaign around the weapons of the resistance and disarming the resistance. And that thus, uh, that these elections uh, are have become a political uh, war, like the one in 2006, in June 2006, Exactly, but with political tools instead of military tools, because the aim of both that war in 2006, the Israeli invasion, and these elections, as declared by uh, the parties that are beholden to the West uh, in Lebanon, is to demilitarize the resistance and strip it of its weapons. Thus, he called on all the Lebanese people to come out uh, and defend the resistance uh, through the ballots. Um, an important point, uh, he, he said, is, is as uh, these elections are unfolding, uh, the Israelis starting tonight are launching their largest uh, military exercises in their history of the Zionist colony. Uh, those exercises were scheduled last year. If our listeners remember, uh, just before the beginning of the war on Gaza and were delayed because of that war. And uh, Sayyid Hassan Nasrallah announced that starting 7 p.m. Beirut time tonight, that all the caterers of Hezbollah will be on the highest uh, uh, readiness and alert to confront any violations that the Zionists may take in the next uh, few days before this election happens, and that they will be ready for that. Um, and, and finally, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to end on this note, in terms of his speech, the speech was had so many important things, but one, one thing that I must mention is that he said the resistance is ready to uh, attack any Israeli installations that may be built in the disputed uh, territorial waters uh, meaning that he will not allow the Israelis to benefit from uh, the gas and uh, oil resources in the waters um, disputed as long as Lebanon is not allowed to extract its own. And uh, this is a serious threat. It means no international uh, companies will be able to uh, prospect for um, you know, resources in the disputed waters. Uh, I know there was a, uh, an incident last Thursday where some members of Amal and Hezbollah apparently were killed. What happened and how do you think that affects the dynamics of the upcoming election? Well, it's not clear yet how things have happened. But uh, as, as noted over the last year, as we are building up to these elections, there's been multiple attempts by the Americans and their vessels in the region, the Israelis and the Saudis, to trigger a civil war in 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 any way 
shape or form in Lebanon um, to because they know that their tools are going to lose in the election if they and and the resistance and their allies will gain more seats actually in the parliament and may be able to form a majority government uh, that uh, is openly pro-resistance. And so now, uh, as the, the the days come near for the for the election on the May 15th, next Sunday, uh, we may see more and more attempts to trigger such a civil war. Uh, and or if that's not possible, as noted by Sayyid Hadassah Nasrallah, the Zionists themselves may trigger a war uh, and that's why the resistance is ready for them. There's another issue. Uh, Israeli high court greenlights forcible expulsion of more than a thousand Palestinians from Masafar Yatta. The Israeli high court last week greenlit the forcible expulsion of 1,200 Palestinians in the area of the southern occupied West Bank, ending more than a two-decade battle in the courts. Uh, what does this signal? Uh, is this just more of the same? Laith Marouf. It is more of the same, but this is uh, if it's enforced, which as of now has not been enforced by the Israeli military. Uh, if it is enforced, uh, it will be a trigger for a military confrontation. As we see right now, the whole of Palestine is on the edge. There's been multiple operations by resistance inside the 1948 territories. Uh, and uh, there's been threats openly by Hamas and Islamic Jihad uh, that any uh, misstep by the Zionists will uh, lead to direct confrontation. Of, uh, uh, you know, in the last few days, there's been many threats um, aired on Israeli uh, televisions and radios by politicians in Israel to assassinate some of the leadership of Hamas. And Hamas leadership came out and said that if one of, even one of them, one hair is touched on them, they will be a direct war. So this um, this um, area of uh, the West Bank that we're talking about that will be ethnically cleansed is uh, more than a dozen villages uh, in the south uh, hills of Hebron. And the intent of the Zionists is to uh, populate these with Jewish white supremacists, this area, to uh, kind of surround Hebron and cut it off from uh, its uh, indigenous population around it. Iraq, um, interesting. Th some, there's some interesting th things I'm seeing now. I, you know, I recently read that when we, you know we covered it that China was building a thousand schools in Iraq. Iraq was had strong ties with both Russia and China. But we have a, a, a recent article that says Iraq's Ministry of Defense signed contracts with the United States and France to import advanced weapons and strengthen artillery. The state news agency reported on Sunday citing a senior military commander. One of the things I'll throw at, at, out is this. It seems to me that very frequently in the Middle East that weapons are bought from the U.S. not to be used for the military, but to buy influence or kind of like to keep the friendship going on. Your thoughts? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, like the all these weapons that get stockpiled by by countries like uh, the Emirates and or Qatar or Bahrain that in, never get used at all because they have no enemy, really. And they are part of an empire, and uh, they're protected. They don't, you know, for instance, Bahrain having the, the largest naval base of the U.S., or Qatar having the largest 
uh, air base. So why, why do you really need these weapons um, beyond just, uh, you know, uh, propping up the failing American economy? Look at the weapons that the this, this uh, supposedly Iraqi army will buy. Are they actually useful in its battle against ISIS and or Turkish occupation in the north of Iraq and or Kurdish militias that control huge swaths of the oil fields of north Iraq? None of those weapons will be used in that. Therefore, they will be just rotting in uh, in uh, warehouses, and they may be not even delivered. Uh, the Iraqis may be just paying for something that never comes. Actually, there is a report: uh, Donald Trump sought Iranian officers' death for political gain, according to an ex-U.S. Defense Secretary. This is reported that uh, his ex-Defense Secretary said that he wanted to kill a senior Iranian military commander a few months before presidential election. This is from a memoir by Mark Esper, who wrote that General Mark Milley, head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, told him that Robert O'Brien, Trump's national security advisor, had called to say that the president wanted to strike a senior military officer who was operating outside of Iran. Uh, let me throw something in there. And at the time, I read a number of things that said that John Bolton and some other people had convinced Trump. So I read something. Mm-hmm. That, you remember that? We covered yes. it here. There uh-huh. was this uh, all this stuff that said they convinced Trump to do it, and Trump didn't know that much about it. And now Esper, didn't he work for who? Wait a minute. He worked for Raytheon. That's where Esper came ah. from. He came from Raytheon. At any rate, your thoughts on that? And that's where the current Secretary of Defense. Uh, yeah, we, we call yes, it the Secretary yes. of Defense, the Raytheon, Raytheon to Secretary of Defense pipeline. Lathe. Yeah. yeah. And, and you know, the, the adage, the, the old uh, political adage that the new president always blames all the problems on the old president. Right. You know, Trump <laughs> is out of this, the, 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 the political cycle. Therefore, you can throw all the problems that happened during his time on on him and uh, absolve yourself of the blame. And that's exactly what's happening right here. Uh, the truth of the matter is that it happened. The United States assassinated a standing general of the of the Iranian military forces in a the territory of Iraq, General Soleimani. It was a war crime. Uh, and it was dishonorable conduct by any military uh, standards of any uh, army. Uh, and the American uh, military should be ashamed of itself. And those who, the, the political leaders should be always, uh, you know, have that scarlet letter on their head as they're walking. And they shouldn't be allowed to absolve themselves from the responsibility. Um, you know, Iran set the standard after that by attacking the uh, American occupation bases in Iraq. And since then, it's clear that the United States will not dare do something like this uh, once more. Um, also, uh, the, there's a, a lot of things coming on about the Saudis. One of them is the, the Saudis a declassified memo confirms direct connection between Saudi government and 9-11. But I'm also hearing some rumblings about the Saudi king being ill and uh, thought. Anyway, your thoughts. What are you hearing out of Saudi Arabia and your thoughts on this? I mean, this is a, uh, you know, you threw multiple things there. Of course, the Saudis were involved in 9-11. Uh, they are the you know, base of the Wahhabi cult, of course, Osama bin Laden was a Saudi, of course, the majority of those were that were involved in 9-11 were Saudi. Uh, and of course, in my opinion, the attacks of 9-11 and, uh, were ordered 
by the Israelis and the Americans themselves and their tool, the Wahhabi cult that has been delivering on their aims for the last uh, 30, 40 years, delivered on that. And as a result of it, uh, the natural uh, absorption of all the Muslim and Arab populations that immigrated over the last 40 years into the West that have by that point outnumbered Jewish populations in, in Western countries and the natural path was for them to be integrated and intermarried and, 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 and equalized with the rest of the population was ended by 9-11. And since then, we see the results of it uh, beyond the fact on the ground in uh, Muslim and Arab uh, countries, the millions that were killed and, and, and made into refugees. We see the exclusion of Arab and Muslim citizens in the West and their inability to be uh, equal citizens or affect the political realities in those countries, specifically all rooted in this 9-11 action that the Saudis delivered on uh, for their masters in Tel Aviv and Washington. Leif Marouf, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. You have a great evening. You too. Thank you very much. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. No such thing as dissent in the age of big tech. Sheer intelligence has been reporting on the rise of censorship in the Internet age in a number of ways since the podcast was started in 2015. Now host Robert Shearer is concerned that under the cloak of the Ukraine conflict, all forms of alternative media on the Internet could soon be eliminated. How concerned should Americans be about this? For insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's a political analyst at MCSC Network. Nico House, as always, Nico, welcome back. Thanks for having me back, gentlemen. You know, a number of incredibly good journalists, such as Joe Lauria, who spent decades working as a reporter based at the UN, Robert Shear, Chris Hedges, and a number of others are being deplatformed or uh, for questioning the NATO and U.S. narrative on Ukraine. I mention these names because these individuals aren't creations of the Internet. These individuals cut their teeth working for media outlets whose narrative they are now challenging. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're, I mean, I'm, I think all the ones that you named were in print media prior to the Internet becoming a thing. I remember even in the article, uh, they talk about Bob Perry, who was the founder of Consortium, how he went from, you know, the AP, but he didn't like the fact that they disallowed him from challenging their narratives, to Newsweek, who didn't. Uh, like the fact that Bob Perry was challenging the foreign policy narrative, and and that that's who really got you know Joe Loria and the like to really kind of find find empowerment and in independent journalism through the internet, and now that medium, of course, is now in sincere jeopardy. And Chris Hedges, who was a a foreign correspondent at the New York Times, foreign correspondent for a number of major 
outlets, uh, was a war correspondent. And so, again, it's I think one of the things and sorry to jump in on back on this, Garland. But but one of the things that, that gets me about a lot of the, a lot of this discussion is people seem to ignore the credentials of a lot of the individuals that are challenging this narrative. It's not Rachel Maddow. You're not hearing them on MSNBC. You're not hearing these individuals on CNN. So all of a sudden, a 25 or 30 year lifelong journalist, war correspondent who is challenging the narrative gets ignored. Well, you, what, what's funny about that is some people might be ignoring uh, those credentials, but we know we know who isn't. We know Google isn't. We know YouTube isn't. We know PayPal isn't because it, I have a theory that people like Chris Hedges, um, you know, like Delora and the like are actually being challenged to somewhat more of a degree than maybe myself or like a Richard Medhurst, specifically because of this particular event being uh, a NATO Ukraine Russia event. And if anybody knows about NATO, really the 80s and the 90s, you really saw a lot of NATO expansion and involvement, and these were the guys who were covering it. So the context that they can provide and the perspective that they can provide is unique uh, and uniquely impactful to what we're talking about right now with the Ukraine-Russia conflict. You know, something I find up, this is a, a great quote from the article. As an old-time journalist, I've never experienced this kind of attack on, and this is important, critical thinking in the media. Mm. I, you know, I've used that kind of Fox News language and said it's a war on critical thinking. I always, I put it like this, Nico. If you have a jury of 12 people and you divide them into three groups and the first four people hear only the prosecution, the second four hear only the defense. And the third four, the last four here, both the prosecution and defense. It's obvious which group is going to be the most knowledgeable and have the be, be most able to make a decision. And what they're saying is we don't want critical thinking. We want you to hear the U.S. empire's narrative and close your mouth or close your ears to all other narratives. So isn't that somewhat of a war on critical thinking, Nico? Yeah, but, but there is, I know it sounds crazy to say, but there is a silver lining with this. Uh, and I'm young. I'm only 33 years old, so it's a little bit different from my perspective and experience. But I believe that the, the fact that there's a war on critical thinking just highlights the fact that before the battle between critical thinking and, and just falling in line based off of a narrative, there wasn't a war because that would entail two sides standing equal chance of winning. Critical thinking would be constantly smashed. Right. That's the only reason we end up with so much support for Afghanistan, the war in Afghanistan or the war in Iraq or, uh, you know, the way Gaddafi was taken out and the way people cheered for it. That's the only way we end up in those scenarios is because there was no legitimate war between critical thinking uh, and censorship. But now the fact that there is a war, in my opinion, probably means that we actually stand a chance to overcome uh, the, 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 the media, the mainstream media establishment, the censorship that we're experiencing, because before critical thinking was just being smashed. I mean, you're talking about literally entire files and books and, and, and papers, uh, research papers being destroyed after World War II, like totally wiped out, history being wiped out. People didn't even catch it because that's how much of a stranglehold the mainstream had on the narrative. But now there is a legitimate war, but that war would entail that two, two sides legitimately have a chance to come out on top, but it is going to take the entirety of independent media and those who obviously support us um, to, to win that particular war. And it isn't just, so it, we're not just seeing a war in Ukraine uh, between Russia and Ukraine and NATO. 
what we're seeing right now is, uh, I hate to use this quote because, you know, it just reminds me of Joe Biden so much, but we're seeing uh, a battle for the soul of critical thinking and independence. Um, and that's where we're at right now. Instead of my making a declarative statement, I'll, I'll ask you a question. Following on that last point that you just made, are you concerned at what I perceive to be the lack of critical analysis coming from the uh, leadership and dominant sources within the African-American community, particularly those in positions of leadership, or I'll put leadership in quotes, in terms of the CBC, uh, the NAACP, the National Action Network, uh, that they're all falling in line with this narrative and challenging uh, African-American intellectuals, journalists, and other uh, thought leaders who are who are trying to provide a historically based context for where we are right now. Well, I'm glad you put that the, the leadership in quotations because that's, they, these leaders, quote unquote, have been a uh, concern for me. Uh, you can make an argument that these leaders are the reason that, like, you know, for those who supported Bernie Sanders, the reason he didn't get in office, but instead a Joe Biden gets an opportunity or Hillary was even made relevant. Uh, or people look in the opposite direction when it came to their infractions uh, and policies that damaged the black community. And so now we're fast forwarding to this Russia-Ukraine conflict um, and the way that African refugees have been treated in the Ukraine by, once again, literal neo-Nazis, uh, has been swept under the rug. And if you do try to bring some context to that situation, even, I mean, I've seen some academics actually who have no knowledge of necessarily the, the beef between NATO and Russia or Ukraine and Russia, but are like, hey, forget all that. What's going on here? Why are we just allowing this to happen when we know these same African refugees, they're being treated the same way uh, that they've been treated in France, if they go there, Israel, if they go there, it's going to talk about the sterilization of African refugees in Israel. Uh, um, and yet, it, whenever Ukraine refugees were being shipped out of Ukraine into Poland or wherever, they were being accepted with open arms because they were being perceived as literally, oh, they, they look like us. So that was the, the, the difference. Regardless of, you know, what they were involved in or who they were loyal to, they look like us and that's all that mattered. And so it is very problematic. But it's not any different than what we see. I mean, they, they wouldn't be in those positions if it wasn't for the establishment allowing them to be there or placing them there because they can trust in them, you know, people from the Congressional Back Caucus and, and the like to do what the establishment does, says to do and, and to speak the narrative that the establishment allows. You know, the, uh, another thing, interesting thing, and I was uh, I was looking at a, an Elon Musk a tweet earlier today, and there were people, Candace Owens, and they were all saying that the um, conservative voices and the right-wing voices are being thwarted online. And my, and I answered, well, then why is it that Cuba and Nicaragua and Venezuela are 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 are, are constantly having their voices muted? Because you can't get any further left than that. But what about your? That's problematic, I think, in that there are a lot of conservatives, and you see it, I'm sure, who argue it's conservative voices. The conservatives are being muted, and I argue, no. Anyone, regardless of your ideology, if you go outside of the U.S. State Department, the mainstream narrative, you're going to get shut down. Nico. Yeah, and I could even make an argument that if you want to talk about the, the genuinely 
Like, I understand that there's a difference between everybody being called a neo-Nazi and a genuinely problematic conservative because I can see the difference between a liberal who thinks they know best because they've been misled versus a Joe Biden or an Elizabeth Warren who knows better but is purposely trying to deceive the public. Right now, you're seeing the most problematic conservatives that are actually, like, towing the line of of neoliberalism and, 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 and imperialist narrative. They're the ones who are actually victimizing themselves and then becoming more popular as if they are being censored while we're watching them get tens of thousands of followers from, you know, from, from kissing Elon Musk's jockstrap every two, every two days just to funnel people into their, their Twitter pages. But like, you know, somebody like myself who gets censored on a regular basis or, or Garland who gets deleted off of Facebook every three days and Mother's Day, uh, you know, like people like that, like that on the left, we're the ones who get censored. Whenever this whole conflict unraveled, remember the conservatives, I was kind of surprised how many of my conservative friends sounded like Jake Huber all of a sudden, sounded like Joe Biden all of a sudden, and were even coming at people who were critical of NATO in this particular situation. But, and they were able to, to get a sizable following off of that. Now they're kind of like waking up, but instead of actually calling out the, the truth because they've already kind of stuck their foot in their mouth they're just kind of shifting to a different conversation and not saying anything about what's happening in the Ukraine. And, 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 but the left, obviously, the anti-imperialist left, like us, are, we're not, I mean, we, we, had the same, we had the same opinions uh, before, when this narrative first started and when the war first started, and we have the same opinions now. And that's kind of what gets us in some trouble when it comes to the media is that consistency. The conservatives who think that they're the ones who are targeted the most, it's laughable. I've been saying this from the very, very beginning. I've been saying... Look, guys, I know that we see what happens to Alex Jones, and y'all think that's about conservatives. But if you know your history, that's not about conservatives. They're testing the water to see what they can do to silence anti-imperialist leftists. That is what is the, the target, the main target on the map when it comes to the establishment has always been anti-imperialist leftists. That won't change now. Yeah, some people who are offensive are targeted because it's easy to target them. Because you want to see who's going to fight back. You want to see the way that they're going to fight back. You want to, you want to see the alternatives that those conservatives turn to so that you can kind of preempt them in the future. But ultimately, all those strategies that are used against the conservatives will then be used against the leftists. And very often, the left has a bad habit of eating itself and, and rarely uplifting the genuine people that the leftists that do get censored, uh, we have less of an avenue to find alternatives than those conservatives who get, you know, who, who kind of put themselves in a victim mentality. And every time they get on the Internet, they've been a victim of something that they probably call themselves, to be real. Uh, and then pretend like, oh, but it's the left. It's the extreme left, which is really offensive to call Democrats and liberals leftists, by the way. But I digress. They always say it's the extreme left who is doing all this and none of us are getting censored, which is not true in the, in the least. Following up on your point about Alex Jones and using that to attack Ultimately, the left, Joe Biden's disinformation governance board really seems to be the the formal application, the formalization of that of that point. Yeah, I mean, we know that's for it is for conservatives, because like in all likelihood, what do we know? We know conservatives are probably going to take over the White House and the House of the Senate. So you think that's really it's really about setting the stage to do what they always do. Bill Clinton comes in. This is also conservative, a conservative who's a real problem gets in power, then they can just wreak havoc while the conservatives justify all the damage that is done under that presidency. 
And we're seeing the stage being set for that right now because there's no way that Joe Biden and the Democrats think that they're going to maintain control of the House and the Senate and the White House over the next 12 to, to 16 years. But that means they also know the Republicans will probably be in control. And who do you think they're going to come after? Nico House, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. It's reported that Ferdinand Marcos Jr. is headed for a stunning victory in the Philippines presidential election that's taking place today with double the votes of his nearest rival, putting the son of the former president on the cusp of a historical political fight back. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's a writer and professor of East Asian and global history at New Mexico State University. Dr. Ken Hammond, as always, sir, welcome back. Glad to be here today. So an unofficial tally by the Election Commission shows Marcos 64 was close to passing the required 27.5 million votes to secure a majority in a presidential election for the first time since the end of his father's 1965 to 1986 rule. What does a Ferdinand Marcos Jr. presidency in the Philippines signal to you, Dr. Ken Hammond? Well, I, I fear that this is uh, this may well be a case where the apple is falling not far from the tree. Uh, uh, Marcos Jr. seems to display a lot of the same uh, features that uh, uh, you know were were pretty problematic for Filipino people during Marcos's Marcos Senior's long reign. Uh, of course, Marcos Jr. himself was a uh, provincial governor uh, during that period, and. Uh, certainly is uh, implicated in a lot of the problems that uh, the Philippines faced. Having said that, though, you know, it's a, it's a, these things are always a little complicated because, on the other hand, Marcos Jr. has uh, at least been perceived by some uh, as perhaps having a, a little clearer perception of uh, the difficulties in the relationship between the Philippines and the United States and the opportunities uh, in a relationship with China. So, it may be a situation where you know uh, there's he's not a, a a particularly attractive candidate in many ways, but uh, you know what he will actually do upon assuming office, since it does appear that he is likely to be elected. I think is going to be something that uh, that bears watching very carefully. Yeah, I, I certainly agree with you. I, I read a lot, and I and I see the same the same dynamic. Interesting article, Matthew Errett. Uh, he writes a lot of good stuff all over the place. His West Asia's economic savior is called multipolarity, and that kind of comes back to Sergey Lavrov's uh, say, you know comments a while back, where he said the Ukraine war is not just about Ukraine; it's about a lot of other things, including breaking the back of a unipolar hegemon. I mean, I'm paraphrasing. He didn't exactly say that, but that's the way I see it. But at any rate, what Matt gets into is kind of the way he sees the economic 
reordering of the world um, and how that could benefit and how and whom could benefit from that. Your thoughts on that? Well, I thought uh, there were some very interesting aspects in that uh, in that discussion. One of the things that that struck me most uh, kind of impressively uh, positively impressively was that uh, uh, talking about um, you know, sort of reconfiguring global financial relationships in ways that, on the one hand, obviously, uh, it would be desirable to have those be out from under the hegemonic dominance of the United States and the international institutions, which it has guided, uh, you know, ever since the end of World War II, the IMF, World Bank, things like that. But uh, I thought that uh, it was particularly interesting to 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 argue that what was needed is not simply to pick a different currency in the way that at, at the Bretton Woods uh, meetings after World War II, you know, the, the economy, the capitalist world economy was to shift from British pound to the U.S. dollar rather than saying, OK, so what's the next single currency? Uh, the argument being made there by, uh, by one of the uh, uh, Russian uh, uh, economic ministers is that uh, it should be on the one hand, uh, you know, what we hear sometimes, a basket of currencies, which is to say a, a mix of different currencies from different countries, so no one country plays the dominant role. But also, and this was the most interesting part, that it should be based not just on, on the currencies per se, but on their linkage to, to actually existing commodities. And, and one reason I find that so, so interesting and kind of engaging is that that's exactly what the People's Republic of China did all the way back in the early 1950s in order to stabilize their new currency, the renminbi, when they were, you know, coming in, taking over from the nationalists where there had been horrible inflation for years and people's livelihoods were being eroded on a daily basis. They based their new currency not on, a, you know, a sort of international exchange rate or a, a monetary uh, a global system, but instead they linked it to critical commodities within the Chinese economy that people actually needed to be able to buy. So that proposal, I thought, uh, this, this new proposal of a basket of currencies, which would then be linked to uh, to real real world commodities, not just to you know financial speculation. I thought that sounded very down to earth and very encouraging. And I hope that uh, that you know things continue to move in the directions that uh, that they certainly have been, uh, because I think that that would that would create a situation or a system that would be much more beneficial to ordinary people than the U.S. dominated dollar system has been. Let me ask you this then. You know, something just popped into my head. When people traditionally talk about linking, you know, the dollar to gold and the U.S. used to be a link to gold, there's been discussion yesterday. I mean, excuse me, yesterday. There's been a discussion recently about the, um, the, the Russians linking the ruble to gold. And it just popped into my head. So what we're saying is it doesn't have to be gold. Linking your currency to gold it's simply linking it to a commodity. So you could link it to any commodity. I mean, right? I, I mean, it just popped into my head, but is that what you're basically saying? Absolutely. And and the, the key difference is that, that, you know, I mean, there's a couple of things. One is that there's not enough gold in the world today to actually back all of the, you know, the aggregate currencies in, in circulation. That's It's just a physical impossibility. So whatever it's going to be, you know, it, we can't go back to a metallic base. But the, the difference here is that they're talking about linking it not just to a single commodity, but again, just as a basket of currencies, a kind of basket of 
of commodities. And and what that relates to is this, this measure that economists have been using for a long time of what's called purchasing power parity. And the idea that, that we, we appraise a currency not in terms of, of its convertibility to, you know, some other desirable currency uh, or some metallic underpinning, but to what will it actually buy the people who have it to spend, you know? Uh, you know, and, and what goes in that basket of commodities, of course, that, that, that's also going to be interesting. It shouldn't be things like, you know, just industrial materials, but food, you know, certain categories of grain or rice or things like that, uh, you know, that, that are really uh, things that, that ordinary people need in their daily lives. Because that was the foundation of the renminbi, which got China, you know, back on a solid footing and, and started it on its path of socialist construction. And something like that would make the global financial economy much more linked to the needs and interests of ordinary people. I want to go back to the uh, Philippine election, and there's some cons- there's some uh, analysis that a uh, this election that it that it could be a win for China, and wanted to get your take on what your thoughts are in terms of removal of President uh, Duterte from uh, from the Philippines and a move towards a Marcos government, even though Marcos has is running with Duterte's daughter, uh, what that could mean for China. Yeah, I, you know, I mean, Duterte himself, of course, has, has kind of been all over the place on the China relationship. Um, at the beginning of his uh, time in office, uh, he, went to, he went to Beijing and was well-received, and there was lots of very friendly talk. And then later, he, you know, kind of backpedaled from uh, some, of the, some of the remarks he'd made that were more critical of the United States. I think Duterte has tried, in a sense, to play China and the United States against each other, which, you know, not an unreasonable approach, perhaps, at least in some circumstances. Um, and certainly Marcos has given indications of probably uh, carrying on in a similar vein, but he's also, he seems to be, he has said more things indicating that he, for example, on the South China Sea issues, he would like to see those resolved on a direct bipartisan uh, or, or, you know, a, a bilateral uh, relationship, a, a discussion, a conversation between the Philippines and China that would serve to resolve those questions in ways that would be mutually beneficial. So if if that proves to actually be his his policy in practice once he assumes office, that would definitely be an improvement in that situation from China's point of view. How strong do you think he can be standing up against what what would be the perceived interests of the United States? Do you think that he has the infrastructure in place to be able to withstand pressure from the United States? I think that that's a very problematic question. I mean, we always have to remember the Philippines is, an, is a former American colony. The United States basically built the modern Philippine state. And although you know, in, in, in the, the imperialist phrase that that's one of those ones we all love to hear, granted independence, you know, to, to the Philippines after World War II, uh, you know, out of, out of the, the beneficence of our hearts. Um, you know, the United States has remained deeply engaged there uh, militarily. Of course, we had uh, one of the biggest naval bases in the world there at Subic Bay for many years. That was a key staging area for the, for the imperialist war in Vietnam. 
you know, so, so there are deep, deep links, many of which, you know, are never on the surface. They're never talked about in, in election campaigns there or certainly here. And probably even most people within the American government are unaware of, you know, uh, but, but linkages through the, 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 you know, as they like to call them, the intelligence communities and things like that. So, you know, uh, anyone's, anyone's ability, not just, not just Marcos or whoever, to navigate a political course in the Philippines that would that would really go against America—that's that's that's a challenge, you know. Which doesn't mean that someone couldn't try it and potentially even be successful with that, but they would need to do so uh, in some very careful ways, or they would need to align themselves with another partner who could provide some some backup uh, uh, to to you know to strengthen their position, and of course. The neighbor up the up the way there in China uh, could potentially play a role like that. That, of course, that would all have to be navigated very, very carefully because the internal political dynamics within the Philippines are still strongly shaped by that legacy of of American colonial rule. We've got some reports coming in now that Marcos, unofficial counts, 26.3 million votes, more than double the 12.5 million votes for uh, Lini Robredo, the vice president, with 81.8 percent. So it, but the bottom line is it looks like a blowout. Do you have any thoughts on why he would win in just, I mean, a massive blowout? It, could it be the China thing or what is it going, what, what is it about? Because quickly, it doesn't seem as though he has some really strong ideological platform. Platform. It seems as though he's running on some broader, uh, you know, we must reunify and, you know, we are the world kumbaya kind of stuff. Well, I think I think that not not to draw too close a parallel, but in some ways, you know, our own uh, uh, recent political experience suggests that many people uh, in times of economic difficulty, in times when they see their own country uh, in an increasingly, uh, you know, a state of decline, uh, that the message of, of an appeal to, to make someplace great again uh, can have a lot of political traction. Mm-hmm. Marcos has, has uh, devoted himself to a kind of retroactive, uh, retrospective uh, uh, whitewashing of the period of his, uh, his father's dictatorship and, uh, you know, has, has uh, floated uh, some, some just false claims. He claims, for example, that during uh, uh, in the 80s that uh, the Philippines was the third largest economy in the world, which is just ridiculous. Uh, but, uh, you know, the ability of people to make, uh, d- you know, discriminating economic arguments and, and all that can, can sometimes be overwritten by emotional appeals to what he has presented as a kind of golden age for the Philippines. And so, you know, making the Philippines great as it was in my father's time, you know, uh, you know, it's an appeal that, uh, that apparently may have some traction there. And, uh, you know, uh, whether or not it, it's based in any kind of reality or, or factual uh, account uh, is, is less important than, than, than its ability to convince people to go in the ballot box and, and vote for him. Well, I can say uh, two things. One, it was great for the Marcos family. And we got the thriller. They've got a great fight, the thriller in Manila. So go ahead, uh, Ferdinand Jr. Uh, Ken Hammond, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. Look forward to having you back. Okay. Always glad to be here, gentlemen. Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned.
We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. In recent years, NATO, essentially the U.S. and Western Europe, has bared its fascist roots through multiple interventions across four continents. The NATO states-backed fascist coups in Venezuela, Honduras, and Bolivia imposed blockades on dozens of nations, fomented al-Qaeda, ISIS, Boko Haram, sectarian terrorism to destabilize Libya, Iraq, Syria, and Nigeria, and are now arming open neo-Nazis in Ukraine. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's an investigative journalist, analyst, and author of three books, The Frozen Republic, The Velvet Coup, and America's Undeclared War. Daniel Lazar, as always, Dan, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So let's start with your thoughts on the premise of this piece. Well, I mean, I think I, I think it's true. It's correct. I mean, a lot of people, it'll strike a lot of people as exaggerated and over the top. But, um, but NATO was born in the post-war period. Uh, when the um, when the when the Cold War was just uh, taking place, uh, and and we know that in, that in 1945, starting in 1945, um, uh, the 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 the, the, the uh, World War II alliance busted up, um, and the U.S. was very quick uh, to um, absorb um, Nazi elements uh, into the emerging. North Atlantic Alliance, um, and to use them against the uh, against the Soviets. And in fact, I mean, you know, there's a, a famous incident uh, in northern Italy that actually occurred uh, several months before the war ended, where the OSS, the forerunner of the CIA, entered into, into negotiations with Nazi military elements uh, in an attempt to sort of, you know, secure their early surrender, and in the process, uh, reach some kind of a, of a, a tacit understanding uh, that in which both would join forces to prevent a communist takeover in northern Italy. The, um, the, the Soviets were extremely alarmed, and uh, apparently Stalin confronted Roosevelt with evidence at the Yalta conference in a in uh, February 1945, and, uh, and, and uh, FDR quickly backed off because, you know, all sides were committed to the un- unconditional surrender of uh, Nazi Germany, nothing, nothing less than that. Um, so so that the process started then, and the U.S. was quite aggressive, quite, a scrupulous, quite unscrupulous in bringing over whatever, you know, anti-communist elements there were to its side. And those elements included, like, you know, uh, large, you know, sectors of fascist and semi-fascist movements. So this went on very early, and it continued virtually nonstop, you know, up to the present day. Well, you know, uh, I think in this article, there's a lot of really good points made, and here's one I'd like to get your thoughts on. While primary fascism is an imperial project, there is also subordinate fascism in former colonies like Brazil and Chile— and one may may argue Ukraine, which integrates itself with the imperial power of the day. I think that is important because you think of, you know, we think of the U.S. empire and the arguments that it's made, what it's for or against, and you look at elements of the empire, be they in, um, you know, jihadists, the Middle East or here. Your thoughts on the subordinate fascism issue? And particularly with, with my uh, mention of, of Ukraine being apparently a subordinate fascist uh, country. Yeah, I, 
I mean, I mean, the, the, you know, Taiwan was it was a good example. Uh, post-war Italy was a good example. Uh, you know, the, the U.S. was quite unscrupulous in hooking up with these elements with which with whom it had, it had just been at war. Uh, you know, a few years earlier. So you know, so Italian fascists uh, escaping uh, German Nazis, etc. Uh, Shanghai Shek and his really nasty, corrupt crew uh, in China and then in Taiwan, uh, various kinds of you know warlords in Central America, et cetera, et cetera. The list is nearly endless. And the reason it's endless is because the U.S. was the U.S. dragnet was so wide. I mean, essentially, it sent out an all points bulletin saying, you know, join us. You know, all past sins are forgiven. We don't care, you know. Whose side you were on in World War II? Join us so that so that we can you know we can we can uh, you know cooperate in, in battling the uh, the communists. And so this happened time and again, time and again. Uh, there's no doubt as to the record as to what went on, um, and and you know and it continued with the the, the with the Mujahideen in, uh, in Afghanistan in the 80s, uh, ISIS and Al Qaeda in Syria, in the teens, uh, and now with uh, the Ukraine, where there is, uh, you know, where there's extensive Nazi influence permeating the entire country, and the U.S. is in the middle of a, you know, a giant campaign to, 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 to shut down public, you know, recognition of that fact, to say it's all a myth concocted by, by, uh, uh, by Russia, and uh, and to paint these uh, these the neo-Nazi outfits like the Azov Battalion as you know as, as just good old-fashioned Democrats, you know, small D Democrats fighting for their homeland. One of the elements that seems to run consistently through this uh, through this piece, or at least in one section of it, uh, is the economic interests that are involved here and the capitalist motivations. Uh, they talk about the Anglo-German naval agreement of 1935 that helped rearm Nazi Germany. General Motors, Ford, and IBM invested directly into the Nazi economy. Uh, Ford assisted the Nazi war machine before and into World War II. The Swiss sold millions of arms to the Nazis, and so we see. I, I see a very similar pattern here with the 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 in the gross uh, number of arms being pumped into the region there really seems to be a profit motive behind a lot of this yeah i, I think uh, obviously obviously arms makers in the us are are making money head over hand over fist in, in, in today's uh, you know climate there's no doubt about that you know but this you know, you know in the 1920s one of the top cheerleaders of Mussolini was, uh, was uh, Winston Churchill. Churchill traveled to Rome in 1927, I believe that's the correct year, in which he gave a press conference and, and announced that if he was an Italian, he would be an enthusiastic fascist. Um, and, then, and then in 1936, during the Spanish Civil War, the U.S. was tacitly allied with Germany and Italy against the Republic. Uh, the U.S. refused to uh, to to oppose um, uh, um, Italy's uh, invasion of Abyssinia in 1935, I think it was. Um, you know, much much to the distress, by the way, of the African American community. Um, and uh, and and th- those you know, 
that stuff was kind of called short, you know, after Pearl Harbor, but it picked up really fast as soon as the war was over. And, and the Ukraine is especially interesting example because after 1945, what things in the, you know, along in Eastern Europe were extremely disorganized. Uh, the, there was the, 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 the society was in ruins and, um, Groups like the Ukrainian uh, pro-fascist, uh, pro-fascist Ukrainian uh, People's Army, a pro-fascist group headed by Stepan Bandera, Bandera, still had fighting units in areas that were nominally under under communist control. This is true from Ukraine to uh, to Poland into the Baltic states as well, and they fought guerrilla insurgencies into the late 1940s and early 1950s with U.S. backing and support. So those forces were eventually defeated. But then in 1991, when the Ukraine became independent, those same forces, or their, in many cases their children or grandchildren, came rushing back, reestablished themselves in Ukraine, and the same process started over and over, no, over again. You know, Dan, the, the interesting thing when you start talking about, uh, and this is a this is a subject that Europe really shouldn't want opened. Um, but when you look at it, what the Nazis did in Germany was, I mean, you know, it was terrible and unthinkable. But they kind of patterned themselves off of what the British and the French and the Spanish and the Portuguese were doing around the world in Africa, in the Middle East, in South America. So. As the Nazis traveled and took over countries, France included, um, Finland, all over Eastern Europe, they would go into various countries and they would find people of like mind there that were waiting to ally with them. So it wasn't like as they went around Europe and spread around Europe that every country they went in that people just turned their backs and said, oh, no, we just love the Jews here. They had people waiting in every country who seemed as though they were kind of waiting like, well, this is our time, time to join with our cultural and ideological brethren. Your thoughts? Well, yes. I mean, every country had its, had its, you know, every country had its left wing and its right wing and had its native fascist movement. Uh, you know, I mean, I mean, uh, Hitler was a, was a great admirer of the British Empire. Uh, he was also a great admirer of Henry Ford um, and had apparently had a large portrait of Ford in his offices, party offices, and awarded Ford a top Nazi uh, um, uh, decoration, a, a medal, which Ford was quite proud to receive. Um, and, um, and once the war began, wherever the German army went, they found eager collaborators, not the majority of the population, but substantial minorities. Um, and that was true in France. It was true in Denmark. It was true in, uh, in Poland, et cetera. Uh, in, in England, the, uh, the, much of the aristocracy uh, was essentially pro-German. I mean, that was the, that was the reason for the, fame, like the, the sensational Rudolf Hess, Hess flight, where Hess was a top, uh, a top Nazi official who had had quarreled with Hitler and then flew a plane to Scotland to try to hook up with pro-Nazi British aristocrats and to negotiate a separate peace so they to end the war between Britain and and Germany so that Britain could join in a German-led crusade against the Soviet Union. Now, Hess was, was caught. He was in prison. 
He remained in prison until uh, until he died in the 1970s, I believe. Um, but uh, but but his flight showed that there was substantial pro-German uh, influence. In fact, in fact, what am I saying? The uh, the the uh, the Duke and Duchess of Windsor, the heir to the, to the British throne, was uh, were, was a, a pro-Nazi. They were living in exile in Portugal, but uh, but it's an open secret that the other uh, Germans had plans to restore the Duke to the throne and his American wife if they were able to conquer uh, uh, Great Britain. So, you know, so, so it was a political process in which the Germans could look, could look forward to finding allies in every country they, they entered. No country was immune to these, these forces. The final paragraph of this piece states, 21st century fascism has arisen in new circumstances, but carries the key elements of the 20th century project, an imperial, heavily militarized, deeply anti-democratic and racist colonial regime embedded in a private capitalist oligarchy. It spawns subordinate fascism, every bit as venomous as its parent, a global imperial project which remains the key enemy of all democratic peoples. Your thoughts on that conclusion? Yeah, I mean, like, 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 uh, like, 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 ultra rightists are now flocking to the Ukraine to join the their their international brigades, where they're receiving, uh, you know, advanced military training, um, and then after the war is over, if if the war ends in terms favorable to the Ukraine, they will go back home, take their training and knowledge with them, and essentially disrupt their home societies in the same way that ISIS and Al-Qaeda disrupted, you know, other societies mm-hmm. back you know, from the 80s on. So we're looking forward to a new kind, a new wave of Nazi okay. terrorism, which is taking place right under our nose. Dan Lazar, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened. And we look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out. 